tonight. I mean, love God's word. I really feel this word will be an encouragement to you guys and really help you. And Lord, we come in Jesus' name and through his blood. I thank you for this series that we've been on. We've been able to go back and honor the moves of God down through the ages and also learn about them. And Lord, I just thank you for this series. And as we get into this word tonight, I thank you for even now the Holy Spirit moving upon every one of us that's going to be watching or listening to this that by the Holy Spirit to give us good soil of hearts and minds and lives. And as you speak through me, your word is living seeds of truth sown into that good soil. Watered by the Holy Spirit, it will take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. I thank you for the winds of the Spirit carrying this out among the nations. It will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. And as the Bible says, it will not return void. And so, Lord, we thank you. Now, the enemy tries to steal the seed, so we agree together. Anything that would try to hinder this word in any way, we command it as a church in the name of Jesus to be bound and back off right now in the name of Jesus. We break your power, and, Lord, I thank you for this being a powerful, effective time in the word and everything accomplished in and through this time. It's your will to be done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we're going to get into, this is part it's not 15 that's a typo uh we'll have to fix that um but anyway we're on part something like 24 or something but um anyway we're moving through this we've covered a lot of ground we've gone through the various moves of god and now we're moving to the very end of this series that we're doing we'll probably have one more after this but how many have learned something through this it's been an encouragement to you so just a quick recap for about 125 years or so, give or take, there was a major move of God that broke out in the first great awakening. The Moravians were praying. The days of Edwards and Wesley and Whitfield, major harvest. The Holy Spirit was moving like the outer court, just salvation, the blood of Jesus, water of immersion. And then it kind of waned, and there was another upsurge of the same revival that broke forth at Red River and Cane Ridge. And then there was an ebb and then an upsurge again in the days of Jeremiah Lampier, 1857, 8, 9 time frame, and the days of like D.L. Moody, Iris Sankey and all that. And that went on until, what about the 20th century? So we had a period of time, about 125 years, where God was moving mightily. And as the Bible said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. It was a worldwide outpouring. But then God wanted to take us from the outer court to the holy place. And he began to move very powerfully in Topeka, Kansas, in the days of Parham, Stone's Folly, upper room, around 30 people praying, asking God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell. I mean, it was like January 1st, 1900, 1901, I can't remember. But the Holy Spirit fell, and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues. It was awesome move of God. And that continued on. They went out from there spreading the news that God is still moving in that way, healing the sick. And I don't want to get into more than I have to, but Alexander Dowie, John Alexander Dowie was seeing healings. But anyway, it ended up at Azusa Street seemed to be the focal point where God just really fell on Bonnie Bray Street and went over to the Azusa Mission. And from there, Pentecost went around the world. And there was an ebb and a flow. Around 100 years or so, it would wane a little bit, but there'd be an upsurge like in the 40s and 50s and wane and an upsurge in the 60s and 70s and then in the 80s 
But we saw the baptism of the Holy Spirit, healings, deliverances, the power of God. And the Argentine revival seemed to be kind of a, uh, an in-between. It, it was in the 80s into the 90s. But when we moved into the 90s, something happened where we went from the holy place to the holy of holies. And there was like a veil rip. We went into the glory of the Lord. And we know about the 90s revivals. That was a time of an intense glory of God, the weightiness of his presence. And we're in that time now, the very last move. And there's been kind of an ebb, but I believe a major upsurge of that revival is about to happen. And it's going to be the revival that gets us ready to meet the Lord in the air and helps bring in this end time harvest. Amen. And God's been building. You can see how it's increased all through these last couple hundred years. All right, so with that said, let's look at something. How many want to make room for the move of God? Well, let me tell you a story. I'm going to paraphrase some of this for the sake of time. But 2 Kings chapter 4, there was a lady. We know her as the Shulamite woman. And this was in the days of Elisha. Remember how Elisha had inherited a double portion of the anointing on Elijah. And so what God was doing in, in the earth during this time, he was primarily doing through Elisha. They were sons of the prophets. There was a company of other prophets, etc. But Elisha was the leader. He was the one that had the influence and the power of God. And what God was doing, it's important that you catch what I'm saying here. What God was doing in the earth, he was doing through Elisha. And so Elisha would travel to places, and he went through this city here, and the Shulamite woman noticed. Now, you can read about this, 2 Kings 4, okay? But the Shulamite woman took notice that Elisha was a man of God, and she took notice that God was doing great things through him. The move of God was happening through the life of Elisha. And she perceived that. And she, so she went to her husband and she asked him, could, could we make a little room for this man of God? Could I say it this way? Could we make room for the move of God in our lives, in our home, in our family? Is everybody following my line of thinking here? And so the husband said, well, do, do whatever you see fit. So she built on or added to or whatever, made a room for Elisha when he traveled through town to be able to stay. There was a bed, and she would cook meals and take good care of him and Gehazi when they came through. And so this was of great comfort to Elisha, you know. And so Elisha, I can just imagine, as you read this story, I'm paraphrasing this story, I can imagine that Elisha is laying there one day in his bed talking to Gehazi, and he's thinking about, you know, we travel all over, and and here we have this nice room, this lady that takes us in like this and cooks us these really nice home-cooked meals and, and just takes such good care of us, you know, and it's so refreshing to be here. And he's laying there in this bed that she's made for him, you know, and he's thinking to himself. So he says, Gehazi, call for that Shunammite woman. So she comes in there and he says, you've made room for us. I'm paraphrasing here, okay? You've made room for the supernatural in your home. You've made room for the anointing, the move of God to invade your family. And you've taken such good care of us. You've honored 
the move of God. And he said to her, what can be done for you? She said, well, I, I don't know. And he said, well, can I speak to the king on your behalf? No, I, I, I dwell among my own people. I'm not interested in all that. I can just hear if I could say this. Don't get me mixed up in all them politics, you know. And Elisha says, well, what can be done for you? And she's, she's again, I'm paraphrasing. Well, she's thinking to herself, now, don't be toying with my emotions here. But I've been barren and I haven't been able to have children. And Elisha says, by this time next year, you're going to be holding a baby boy. And she did. So she made room for the move of God in her life and in her family. And it affected her entire family. By that time next year, she had a son. So God gave this woman of God who made room for the move of God in her life and in her home and in her family. How many knows here in River of Life, we've been making room for the move of God, okay? And I know many of you in your home, you've been making room for this last day move of God. So God gave this precious woman seven major miracles. And I'm going to read them to you and just explain them. But number one, she had a supernatural pregnancy and a supernatural birth of a son. Number one. Then, miracle number two, one day her son, as he was weaned and got older, was out in the field with his dad, and he cried out my head and fell on the ground. He ended up dying. And so she takes, now think about this for a moment. She takes this little boy, and she takes him into that room that she made for the move of God. And she puts that little boy on that bed where Elisha would sleep. And I imagine she's weeping and calling out to God, Lord, have mercy on me. And she runs to her husband. She says, please let me go. I need to go get the man of God. And she's probably thinking to herself, God didn't give me this son just for a couple of years for him to die as a child. And so she hitches up her horses, and I imagine she pushed those horses pretty good, wouldn't you think? And she's riding out to see Elisha. And she gets there, and he's sitting up on this hill, and she runs up and grabs his feet, and she's, she's really weeping, and she's burdened. And Gehazi didn't want anybody to think there was something inappropriate, so he started to push her away. But Elisha said, no, leave her alone. She's troubled deeply, and I don't know what it is. God hadn't revealed it to me. He said, woman, what can be done for you? What's going on? And and she said, my son that you promised me has died. And remember, she made room for the move of God. And now she put that need in that room on that bed. And Elisha says, Gehazi, take my staff and go before me. So Elisha said, I'll come. And he gets up and he goes to her house. And when he gets to her house, he finds the boy there on his bed in the place that was made for the move of God. And he shuts the door and goes in there with this, this young boy. And he's walking, he's praying to God. And being led by the Spirit, he lays upon the boy. Now I'm going to come back to this in a moment. But he put his eyes on that boy's eyes. He laid on him prostrate, okay? Put his eyes on his eyes, his mouth on his mouth. Put his hands on his hands. And I'm sure the torso down to the feet and laid on that boy. 
and he began to pray. And as he's praying, that boy is getting warmed up, and God's beginning to move. And he gets up off the boy and walks around. He's praying some more, and then he gets a second time. He gets back on that boy, and he's praying, God, raise up this boy. And you know what happened? That boy raised from the dead, began to sneeze, and got up and was hungry. She made room for the move of God in her life. And when she needed a miracle, that room she made was where a miracle was birthed. You understand? Hopefully you guys are seeing where I'm going with this. Because there's places, God bless them, that don't want the move of God. Well, you know what? You may miss out on the supernatural and all kinds of miracles God had for you too. And isn't that sad? But when you make room for the move of God, you're opening the door for major miracles in your life and in your family. And God wasn't done. There were seven major miracles. The next miracle happened. We read about, now you're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 8 to read about the last five. But there was about to be a severe famine. And Elisha sent word to her and told her, you need to take your family and go somewhere else because there's a famine coming. So the number three, the third miracle was that she had a supernatural prophetic word come to her that warned her of danger ahead. When we make room for the move of God, we make room for supernatural prophetic words and insight coming to us when, when we need it. And I believe in the days to come, we're living in the last days, God may be giving us some advanced warnings about some things that are coming that we need to know about and we need to be ready for. So the fourth miracle that happened for her was she moved her family. They all moved out of Israel to the land of the Philistines and they lived there for seven years and they had plenty to eat and they were well taken care of. They were provided for in those seven years while there was famine in the land back in Israel, they were taken good care of. The fifth miracle, and I love this one, the seven years are up. And she knew by the word of the Lord that those seven years had ended and we need to go back home. But she also knew that she abandoned her land and she needed the king to restore back her land to her because she knew that some squatters would have come in and took over her house and took over her fields. So get this. I hope you really can appreciate how miraculous this is. It just so happened that the day she made an appointment to meet with the king and asked the king, I need my land and my house back because we were gone for seven years. It's rightfully ours, but there's going to be people squatting there. When she walks into the king's chamber to speak to him, guess who's in there talking about Elisha and the miracles that Elisha was doing in the earth? Gehazi. And right as she walks in there, Gehazi is telling that king, you'll never believe this. I saw a boy get raised from the dead to Elisha. And the king is sitting there going, my goodness, he was raised from the dead. In comes the woman. And Gehazi said, and there's the woman that her son was raised from the dead. What are the odds of that? You know as well as I do, that was supernatural. That was the fifth miracle that she had some kind of supernatural timing of, that caused great favor in her life. I'm talking great favor because that leads to number six. 
The king told her, please tell me about this story. And as she recounted the story, then he said to her, I will restore back your land and everything that you lost. It is 100% restored back to you right now, which led to the seventh miracle. Then the king adds this, not only am I giving you back your land, but the last seven years, every bit of fruit and grain and everything that you've lost over those seven years, he told his servants, make sure that every bit of that gets back into her possession. Wow. Did y'all really think about these seven miracles? Look what happened to somebody who made room for the move of God in their life and in their family. Wow. When we make room for the move of God, be ready for supernatural, number one, miracles, but the raising of the sun from the dead. What is revival if it isn't life from the dead? Revival is where something has died and God breathes life back into it again. Supernatural information, supernatural provision, supernatural timing supernatural favor all these things came in her life because she made room for the move of god now i'm going to go back to second kings chapter 4 verse 32 and i want to read again about elisha when he came to the boy who had died and it says in verse 32 when elisha came into the house he saw that the boy was dead lying on his bed so he went into that room and shut the door on the two of them and he prayed to the Lord and he went up and lay on the child look at this put his mouth to his mouth his eyes on his eyes his hands on his hands he bent over the child and the child's flesh was warmed then he got down and walked once back and forth in the house and went up again and, and laid on him again and the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes listen I want to talk just for a moment about this River of Life, we've been making room for the move of God. And because of that, we've had some amazing testimonies here. We've had some amazing prophetic words come. We've had some powerful moves of the Holy Ghost. God has touched our lives. He, he's healed people. He's delivered people. He's moved mightily. But I'm telling you, it's nothing compared to what's about to happen. This has just been God laying on us the first time and getting us a little warmed up. I'm telling you, I felt that when I said that. The second time, there's going to be life from the dead. God's about to pour out his spirit and send revival. But here's what I wanted to say. Elisha laid his eyes on that boy's eyes. Please hear me tonight about these three things. We have to have vision. And what I mean by that is God has got to be able to speak to us. We have to be able to see things. How many times was Jesus frustrated because he's thinking to himself, they have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. We have to have eyes that can see. I'm thinking about the church of Laodicea. Here we are in this last days, and we're in the final age before the Lord comes. And we've entered already into that Laodicean age of lukewarmness and where it seems like a lot of Christendom would say what the Laodicean said, I'm in rich and in need of nothing. But Jesus said, and if I could paraphrase, 
Oh, that's what you think. Well, let me tell you how I see you. Wretched and poor, naked and blind. I counsel from you to buy gold refined in the fire. You know what he's saying there? Let me put you through a refining fire and even maybe some fiery trials and actually purify you, number one. Number two, that I can anoint your eyes with eye salve, what? So you can see. Now let me give you pure garments like a bride without spot or blemish. But in this Laodicean age, we've got to have eyes that can see. And God may be drawing us to prayer. God may even be, have put us through some extremely difficult times in life, like gold refined in the fire, where we've been through some extremely difficult times. And those difficult times have drove us into a, a deep place of prayer and intercession and seasons of fasting and drawing into an intimacy with God. And it's in that place that God anointed our eyes and we've been able to see like we've never seen before because we're going to have to have that in these last days. If we're wanting a move of God, we're making room for the move of God. We cannot be spiritually blind. God has got to be able to show us things and say to us, go in this direction. Don't do this. Watch out for this over here. He, we've got to be able to distinguish between the holy and the profane. We've got to know the difference between something that's of God that's supernatural and something that's of the devil. And that can only come when we've been developed in our inner senses and we have eyes that's actually able to see. And so God has been preparing us river of life and drawing us into prayer. And as you develop your personal prayer life and you spend time praying in the spirit and you're in the word and you're going deep in prayer, that's the place where God is sharpening our vision and he's getting us ready that he can entrust us with this move of God. Number two, he put his mouth on his mouth. Now I'm going to tell you something else God has been doing in river of life. We've got to be willing to preach the truth and say whatever it is God is telling us to say, even if we're hated for it, even if we're persecuted for it, even if people don't want to hear it, even if they stomp out of the room, it doesn't make any difference. The truth is the truth, whether you like it or not. It's not going to be watered down or compromised just to make somebody happy. Elisha put his mouth on his mouth. Can God put his mouth on our mouths? Can he put his word in our mouth? And no that we're not going to be intimidated by anybody. We're just going to tell it like it is. We have to have eyes to see, but we also have to be entrusted with a mouth that will preach the truth. Because in these last days we're living, there's going to be some people that hate the truth. And number three, and I'm going to come back to this at the end of the sermon, we have to have something in our hands. Elisha put his hands on those boys' hands. We have to have an anointing that we can lay hands and there is a power to see things happen. Now, I'm going to come back to that here in a moment. So how do we practically make room for a move of God in our lives personally and in our home? God doesn't just want the move of God in church here. We've made room here. But he wants the move of God in your home when you go home. He doesn't want you going home to something sterile and dead and even oppressed. He wants you to go home to something where his glory is. 
And the first thing I would say to make room for the move of God, number one, just like that Shulamite woman, what did she do? She said, husband, can, you, can I please make room? She, she did something, got her servants to either build a structure or an add-on, or she cleared out an existing room. But she did some work to clear something out and make something that can house the move of God. Okay, so how do we do that practically? Number one, we better make room for prayer and organize prayer. Is everybody hearing what I'm saying? I kept going back to the parable of the wheat and the tares. The tares look exactly like wheat. And I'll go ahead and say a couple things while I'm on this. You know, how do you tell the difference between a wheat and tare? They look the same. But what did the parable say? The parable said, don't try to dig it up right now because you'll dig up some wheat with it. Wait until the harvest. That's because you'd be able to know the, know the difference. How many knows that there's sometimes there's some people, and I, I'm not saying it's here, thank God, and I'll get back to that because it has to do with prayer, but there, there's churches out there, ministries, where there's some established tares among the wheat, and they've been there for years, and their roots have gone down in there, and their roots have gotten intertangled with other tares and some wheat, and so if you were to go there and you were to pull that tear up by the roots, what's going to happen? You're going to take some wheat with it. You hear what I'm saying? And ministers sometimes are in a dilemma. They'll come into a pre-existing church that's got some established tears in there, and they know that if they try to deal with them, they're going to take some wheat with them when they leave. Hello? How, how can you tell the difference between wheat and tares? Well, there's a couple things. One farmer said, well... If you watch the wheat versus the tear when it grows up to maturity, the tares start to kind of get more uh, hardened and more, more of like a crisp about them. They're, they're more stiff. He said the wheat, as the wind blows across the fields, you can see the wheat swaying, but he said the tear won't really move. It's more rigid. How many times have we seen, you all know where I'm going with this? How many times have we seen in some places where the Holy Spirit starts blowing into a service and the wheat get caught up in his presence and are just swaying and worshiping, lifting their hands and see tears coming, people worshiping in the spirit. And what's the tear doing over there? Sitting down or just sit like this, just rigid? They're not going to worship for nothing. The wheat and the tares. There's another revelation about the wheat and tares. The wheat... When it comes to maturity, the wheat will form grain on the top of it. We've all seen this. That weight of the grain, you could call that fruitfulness, if you will, will cause it to bend over, but the tear doesn't have any grain on it, so it stays erect. So that, that makes you think about this. Jesus said you'll know a tree by its fruit. If you'll watch people long enough, the fruit of their life will determine if they're a wheat or tear. But that takes time to watch them. And another thing I would add about tares is this. The fact that the wheat is bowed over speaks of humility. Where the tear is not going to bend for anything. Pride. But how did Jesus say in this parable, how did the tares even get among the wheat? It said that an enemy did it while they slept. Isn't it interesting that in the Bible, prayerlessness 
prayerlessness is the same thing in the Bible, metaphorically speaking, as sleeping. You see that all through the scriptures, all through the New Testament. Watch and pray. What is watch? What it's speaking of is, is people that their job in the military was during the night, they would have to stay up while everybody else is sleeping and they would watch and make sure there's not an enemy invasion or something going on that shouldn't be. That was their job. And so prayer warriors are watchmen. What did Jesus say to the disciples? Couldn't you tarry one hour with me, but you keep falling asleep on me? The flesh is weak. If you don't pray, and they didn't pray, they weren't really ready. Anyway, the point is, is that while people were sleeping, the enemy snuck in and sowed tares among the wheat. I believe the reason tares get in a lot of times is prayerlessness in churches. If people were really praying like they should, the tares wouldn't be able to get in and get their roots down and start causing problems. Prayer would help keep it out. So number one is we need to organize prayer. One of the things God put on my heart, not that everybody has to do this, but I felt Sergio Scataglini had a lot to do with it, but the Watchman program where one, one day a week, somebody will pray and fast that day. So you only have to pray one day or fast rather one day from morning to evening. And on that day of fasting, somebody else may be joining you on that day, but it's an easy way to organize fasting seven days a week because on, one person only has to fast one day. It's not hard. And so every day of the week, there's people praying and fasting, and we have a sheet, the watchman sheet, that we're all in agreement praying the same thing. And Sergio Scataglini talked to me for a long time, and he's a good friend of us, our ministry, and he'll be here soon to preach. And he was telling me, he said, you know, there's something about daily hammering the enemy back. And see, he's right. Because he said that what we were doing was we were trying to join with a few of the churches and pray with them. And I say this with love, but really there wasn't a lot of prayer going on outside of our church, but there was a few that would show up sometimes. And he said to me, he said, well, brother, I think that that's just going to draw spiritual warfare and just kind of just not really accomplish much other than just tick off the enemy and, and kind of invite warfare. And he was right because there were people getting attacked. He said, you need to have something where you're hammering the enemy back every day. And that's where this came from. So as we're praying and fasting every day as a church, somebody is. Secondly, we've made room for the move of God by having corporate prayer in our church. I think sometimes a mistake that some people make is that they think that they have to try to make everybody come. That's a big mistake because if you try to get everybody there, you're going to get some people that don't need to be there. Somebody that's sitting around on their phone looking at their Facebook instead of praying, why even come in the first place? It's a waste of your time and everybody else's time. Just go home. And so if pastors would quit, quit trying to get everybody there and just help and ask the Lord, Lord, draw the right people and just tell them, say, on this night, we're going to open the church and we're going to have prayer. If you feel to come, come, but it's going to be prayer. It's not going to be social time. It's certainly not going to be gossip time. Some, some places call it prayer and they sit around telling 
all this gossip, let me tell you, that's, that's accomplishing the opposite. All that's doing is serving the devil's purposes and hindering what God wants to do in that church. That's evil. But he, the pastors say, look, we're not going to have all this socializing or anything else. When you come, it's to pray. So if you're serious about prayer and you want to pray, come and pray. And, and open it up. Make room for the move of God. Listen, the, the Bible says my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And the church world has made prayer the least, and think about it, they've made it a house of everything else but prayer. Little wonder things are like they are. We need the power of God, but it's not going to happen. What does the Bible teach us? We have not because we ask not. Why are we not seeing moves of God and the power of God like we should? Lack of prayer, lack of fasting, and a lack of deep prayer, deep intercession. And that's another thing. Make room for the intercessors. Let God bring intercessors back into the church world that know how to get in the spirit in deep prayer. Uh, praying in the spirit even groans too deep for words. They know how to pray. Welcome that back into the church. Quit trying to relegate these things out of the church to a back room because you're so worried about offending so-and-so. You know what you're doing? offending so-and-so might be this it might be god's way of keeping some tears out of your church hello but you're so focused on just more people coming that you're welcoming in the goats among the sheep and i'm gonna tell you some ministers bless their heart they're having all these issues but they don't understand that they have a group of sheep and they also are trying to be goat herders at the same time and the goats and sheep are intermingled together and they don't get along well spiritually or in really any other way. And the church is struggling spiritually. Why? Because it's full of all these problems of carnal people, worldly people. But let's get back into prayer and welcome prayer meetings, intercession back in the church. And here we are in the last days. This is the time that we need to be praying more than we ever have. I mean, you know as well as I do, the coming of the Lord is very near. We're talking just a few years probably before the rapture. You know, we need to be in deep prayer right now. Number two, organize evangelism. Let God lead you. Let God move upon the right people. But begin to reach out for souls. River of Life has always done this. Unfortunately, the pandemic hindered this in some ways that was totally beyond our control. But we're keeping it going, and I encourage people, don't neglect evangelism. That's the heart of Christ is to seek and save the lost, isn't it? That's the reason he came. And as we get out there and we're going to witness, God's going to bless you. He's going to bless this church. But he's not going to pour out his spirit to a group of people that's not concerned about the lost. So organize evangelism and outreaches. How can we get to those people? Number three, have unstructured services. It doesn't mean that there's not some kind of a general idea of what we're going to do, but it's unstructured, meaning that the Holy Spirit can br break in at any time and do whatever he wants to do. Sometimes in River of Life, the worship may be relatively short. Other times it may be long. There's been times where the, the worship, I just walked out and began to pray for people. It's however the Lord wants to do it. The service in River of Life is and always will be unstructured. So what do I mean by structure? Not that there's not a general pattern, but when people come in and say, okay, 
At 10.26, we're going to do this. And then at 10.30, we're going to do this. Then at 10.37, this. You understand that you just structured everything. You've structured the move of God out. Because even if God does try to blow in on that, it's going to be ignored and it's just going to go to the next thing. People structure revival right out the door and structure it. And you know what that is? It's an old wineskin. See, a new wineskin is flexible. That's the point of it. And when you pour new wine into it, it's able, a new wineskin is flexible and it can expand. An old wineskin is very rigid. You pour new wine into an old wineskin, it begins to expand, but it can't expand and it bursts open and the, the new wine is lost and the wineskin is destroyed. It's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. If you try to pour new wine into some of these structured services, it's going to be lost and it's going to bring destruction to what they're doing. Does everybody see what I'm saying? So you have to remain flexible. The Holy Spirit is in charge of the service. If he wants to move a certain direction, he may even totally change the sermon. One night, the Holy Spirit may move in the altar in deep intercession. Another time, we may pray for people. There may be a healing service, however the Holy Spirit wants to do it. But we have to be willing to move with him. The next one is this. I encourage people to have revival services. So number one, organized prayer. Number two, evangelism. Number three, unstructured services. Number four, have revival services. Bring in anointed speakers and begin to have them come in and deposit what God wants to do through them in your church. It's like we've been doing this for years. You know, we have these different conferences or I have speakers in, but I'm going to tell you what that's doing. That's bringing in and anointing a move of God, just like the, the Shulamite woman. She said, I want to make room for this man of God to come in and what happened? Revival broke out in her life and her family. So bring in the anointed men and women of God. Let God use them. And also in that, purge out of your church the people that are Pharisees, Jezebels, Judases. They're trouble. They don't need to be there anyway. Let them go ahead and get offended and leave so you can really see a move of God. But as we welcome people in and they come in among us and they lay hands on us as anointed men and women of God, God is depositing something in our lives and in this church. How many have noticed that whenever we have these conferences and different speakers have come in, they pray over everyone, God uses them mightily when they leave, there's something different. They've deposited something in the, in the church. And then finally, the next one and the last one I would say is this. Let God move mightily among the younger generation. That's kind of where I'm going to close out tonight as I talk about the laying on of hands. Is we need, listen, I believe with all my heart back, I'm what's called Generation X, okay? And when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I remember the 90s revivals and I remember hearing sermons back then in the mid to late 90s of people being very concerned because they felt that there was Pentecost that the previous generation knew, but they were not passing it to the next generation, which was my generation. They weren't doing it very well. 
And the sermons that I was hearing were sermons saying things like, you know, there what these churches used to be known for Pentecost, and now you don't ever hear speaking in tongues. You don't, the gifts are not in operation. And even, even the leadership, their kids aren't speaking in tongues. And that's what, what was being said in these sermons of great concern. That something that the baby boomer generation had with God was not being passed well to Generation X. Is everybody following me? And unfortunately, they were right. And there's churches now that, that used to, you can look in their history, they were very spirit-filled. And now, I mean, this is very common, actually. The overwhelming majority, majority of them that used to be spirit-filled Pentecostal, you're not going to see a move of God anymore in their midst. What happened? It was lost. It was not purposely passed. And I would say this. Kenneth Hagin warned about this. He said, I see that this generation, he was speaking to his generation, which would be the baby boomers. He said, this generation, we have intercessors and we understand the intercessory ministry. And he warned this. You can look this up. If we don't carefully, deliberately pass this to the next generation, I feel it will be lost. And now we, don't, we hardly ever see powerful intercessors anywhere. And people that come through River of Life that travel the entire nation this is one of the most common things I'm told. We don't hear or see intercessors like this anywhere else that we go. That's scary. In all the old-time Pentecostal people that you go and talk to them, you can bring this up to them and say, do you remember the intercessors back in the day? Oh, yeah. They all know what you're talking about because they remember the Holy Spirit moving in the church services and you would hear these older women get in the spirit and begin to groan and travail and pray. And it was their prayers that were causing so much of that move of God in the church. The pastor knew that. The pastor knew that those women knew how to touch God and their prayers when they stood up in the pulpit was going to affect the entire service. But something happened. At some point in the 80s into the 90s where we began to get away from that and we're suffering the consequences of it right now. Did you know that here's the consequences? You ready? Did you know the millennial generation that has come up now that only about maybe 25% of them even believe in the Bible and even believe or take uh, God and take his word seriously at all? That is the consequence right there. It was not purposely passed. And therefore it was lost. And now the generation has come up. And it reminds me of the judges where it said about Joshua when his generation died. What did it say? It says there's a generation that rose up in Israel that did not know the Lord or his ways. You want to read a weird book in the Bible? Read the book of Judges. Once that Joshua died, for whatever reason, that generation did not carefully pass the knowledge to the next generation. And therefore, when that generation came up, they just began to do whatever was right in their own eyes. And you know as well as I do, the book of Judges is weird. They got into spiritual, strange, bizarre activity. Why? Because they didn't have something passed to them that they needed. Now, here's the good news I have, and I'm going to talk about the laying out of hands. It's the last thing I want to talk about. 
But the good news is this. How many knows that God is a God of restoration? Don't take what I'm saying lightly. God is the God of restoration. Isaiah 58 says that we will pray and fast, and we've been doing that in River of Life. He said, I'll hear an answer, and then he goes on through this big list of things, but the last thing he says is, you'll be among those that rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up age-old foundations. God is about to pour out his spirit and send a major revival. If we will ask him, he will restore these ancient ruins. He can do it in a short amount of time. You know, we read the scripture, a thousand years is as a day to God. You know how that can be read? God can do in one day what would take man a thousand years. Let me tell you, God can send a revival that will raise up intercessors like that, that will restore Pentecost like that, that the power of God will come in like that. He can sweep in and turn this whole thing around in a relatively short amount of time. But it's going to be those that know how to pray and fast and touch God so that they can tap into his supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Will we be among those in River of Life that will make room for the move of God, for God to come and restore this? How would you like to see all this younger generation coming in, tears flowing down there, they're getting hit by the power of God. All of a sudden, there's a bunch of them that are getting baptized in the Holy Ghost. Now they're speaking in tongues and Book of Acts Christianity and some of them being raised up to be powerful intercessors. God can do it and he can do it in a short amount of time. So let me move to this final thing. I'm gonna talk about the laying on of hands. Give me just a few minutes here. This is where I wanted to get with this. Remember, Elisha, his eyes on his eyes, his mouth on his mouth, and what, his hands on his hands. Let me read Hebrews 6, 1 through 2. Therefore, leaving the elementary principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. Now, look, he's dealing with foundational truths here. Let us not have to go back and lay again the foundations that you, we already should know of repentance of dead works and faith toward God, number one, that we're willing to turn from our sin and put our faith in the Lord. Number two, instruction about washings. That's interesting. Let me just say this in love. The greater body of Christ in Christendom probably have almost zero understanding of the, the mystery and the power of water immersion. It's relegated down to just this once-in-a-lifetime little thing. It's a religious ritual. It's almost powerless. If they went back to their Hebrew roots and really studied this out, they would find that there is a lot more about water immersion and the power of it than what they know and understand, okay? Instructions about washings. Number three, the laying on of hands. And then four, the resurrection of the dead, five, eternal judgment. These are things that the writer of Hebrews, probably Paul, but we don't know, said that the laying on of hands is a foundational teaching. It would surprise some people in Christendom to realize that the doctrine of laying on of hands is as basic and foundational as comparative repentance from dead works and faith toward God. It's never practiced in many places. So this is part of why we've lost something that I believe God's about to restore. 
how did we lose it? How did, from the boomer generation to the X generation, my generation, we saw the 90s revivals. There was a remnant of us that were mightily touched. But yet, by and large, the body of Christ in America did not have passed from one generation to the next what was needed. And now there's a generation coming up like they are. How come? What, what could have been done different? Well, I'm going to give you a few things about the laying on of hands. Number one, the impartation of a blessing. A lot of people don't understand the mystery and power of a blessing. I'm not talking about something good that happens to you that we say, well, wasn't that a blessing? A blessing is things that are spoken deliberately with faith that you release something as an authority figure. You speak a blessing out, and those words are imparted on somebody. And those words will come on them and will begin to cause good to happen to their life. The opposite, obviously, is a curse. When there's a curse on somebody's life, it keeps causing negative to happen. So let me give you a few examples. Isaac to Jacob, we know that Isaac laid his hands on Jacob and imparted the blessing that he received from Abraham. So Isaac had received something through the laying on of hands of his father. Abraham, basically, if I could paraphrase all this, God imparted to Abraham, God put on him just like a garment, like this jacket I'm wearing, of an investment. Something came on Abraham from God that was a blessing that caused every area of Abraham's life to be blessed. And Abraham laid his hands, if you will, and passed that like an impartation to Isaac. Isaac, in turn, when he thought he was going to die, said, I need to pass this to the next generation. And he ended up laying hands on Jacob and passing that generational blessing to Jacob. And then you see it again in the life of Jacob, when he called Joseph, he blessed all of his children, okay? He blessed all of them. But I remember when he called Joseph and his two grandboys that were there, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he crossed his arms like this, and he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember that? What was he doing? Jacob knew what he was doing. He was passing a generational blessing through the laying on of hands and impartation that would come upon them, that would follow them the rest of their life. There is something about us speaking a blessing with faith. I don't have time to get too deep into this, but speaking a blessing over the next generation and laying hands and imparting that blessing to cause something to keep moving forward from generation to generation. The next thing that we see transferred through the laying on of hands was the anointing. Look at Moses to Joshua. There's many examples. But Moses laid his hands on Joshua, his spiritual son, his successor. And when Moses laid hands on Joshua, the Bible says the spirit that was on Moses came upon Joshua and he was anointed by the Holy Ghost to be able to do what God had called him to do. But it was a transference through the laying on of hands. 
that Joshua would not have had unless Moses deliberately released that to him. Do you understand the significance of this? If Jacob had not received that impartation of a blessing, he would have struggled. And you know as well as I do, the devil would have tried to take him out. The devil would have tried to stop everything God wanted. It was that blessing that kept turning everything in Jacob's favor and would give him supernatural answers to prayer and victories and all these different things. It was that blessing. He needed. But Joshua, Moses imparted to him the anointing, and it was the anointing on Joshua that caused him to be able to hear from God and step out in faith and see amazing victories in battle. It would not have happened if Moses hadn't laid hands on him. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Spiritual children, like from Paul to Timothy. Paul laid hands on Timothy. There was some kind of an impartation from Paul to his spiritual child. You know, we think of Isaac to Jacob. We're thinking biological, that's important. But what about spiritual children? We need to also think about our spiritual children that there's a transference of a blessing and anointing, something that's passing from one generation to the next. I can't help but think about my, you know, spiritually speaking, these two intercessors that God put in my life, these elderly women, that I mean, I couldn't have lined that up if my life depended on it. It was something that was just orchestrated by God. I just happened to be in the same place with them, but I can't help but think how they imparted to me and then how it jumped from my life into Brianna's life to my daughter, a generational transfer. You understand that? I mean, that it was a deliberate thing that God wanted something to go from a generation. These, these precious elderly women at the time were in their 60s and the 90s, but God wanted that generation that there was something that would pass from them to my generation and then from my generation to the next generation. It's a generational transfer. Did you know in Mark 16, 17, another thing about the laying on of hands, it says that these signs will follow them that believe in my name, what they'll drive out demons, they'll speak in new tongues, and what? They'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. There can be, through the laying on of hands, a transference of healing power that brings change. Down through the years, I've been astonished at all the healings and miracles that we've gone back and seen, but it's just the anointing of the Holy Ghost that brings healing. The next one is the baptism in the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 8, Philip went through Samaria Great revival broke out, a big harvest of souls. People were water baptized. Many were healed and delivered. He sends for Peter and John. When Peter and John come in, what happens? They lay hands on the Samaritans. Why? Because they had not received the baptism in the Holy Ghost yet. They had only been saved. So Peter and John lay hands on them. Everybody say lay hands. When Peter and John laid their hands on the Samaritans, the power of God was transferred. They were baptized in the Holy Ghost and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. But there was a transference through the laying on of hands that caused them to be baptized in the Holy Ghost. Did you know spiritual giftings can be activated? This is as the Holy Spirit wills it. You pray for one person, you know, if the Holy Spirit wills it, a certain gift will be activated in their life 
another person, altogether different gift. Holy Spirit's in charge of all of that. But Acts chapter 19, when Peter is going through a road to Ephesus, he stumbles upon some people that were disciples of John the Baptist. And he says, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? And they said, we don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. And he's like, well, you're disciples of some kind. What do you, and they said, well, we were baptized in John. And he said, okay. He said, but John was telling his followers to believe on the one who's coming after him. That's Jesus the Christ. Upon hearing that, they believed in Jesus. There was a new birth right there. It comes by faith, amen. But then Paul laid hands on them and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. What happened? Giftings were being activated in their life. Listen, 2 Timothy 1.6, stir up the gift that's in you through the laying on of my hands. Did everybody catch that? There's gifts that can be activated through the laying on of hands. Again, the Holy Spirit is in charge of it. He's the one that determines who gets what gifts and how many and all that. But through the laying on of hands, get spiritual gifts can be activated in people's lives that were not activated before. Another thing is ordination and sending. Acts chapter 13. After Paul accepted the Lord, he went off and sought God for years. But him and Barnabas end up in a place called Antioch. Antioch was a powerful church in the early church. It would have been like a, a Jewish quarter. For, for example, if you go somewhere like L.A. and you go into California, there's an area, I believe Chinatown's in there, right? Am I right? Okay, there's an area called Chinatown, and it looks like you enter into Little China, even though you're still in that area, L.A. Okay, in the same way, Antioch would have been very Jewish. And there was a church there that was planted, and among that church... They were prophets and teachers, and the Bible referred to Paul as a prophet and a teacher. And they were there seeking God in seasons of prayer and fasting, kind of like we've been doing. Seasons of prayer and fasting, seeking God about their destiny and about what God's wanting to do. And one day, the Bible says the Holy Spirit spoke to the, the leadership of the church there and said, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. And so while they were in prayer and fasting, God's, the Holy Spirit told them that. So they set Paul and Barnabas apart now. And now God was calling them that they were going to go out as missionaries to take the gospel even unto the Gentiles. And so what happened? Read it. The leadership there laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them out. But they needed that laying on of hands. And Paul was humble enough to know that he was not going to be out there independent of everybody and everything. He knew that he needed that local church spiritual covering. He needed the, the leadership, the pastoral leadership there to lay hands on him and to send him out under their covering and their blessing. And Paul saw tremendous success when he went out. He saw many people saved. So there's something about the laying on of hands that ordains and sends people out for the work to which they've been called. Is this making sense? Another thing we see in the Bible is the appointing of leaders. Acts 14.22, when it came time that the early church needed leaders appointed, they laid hands on them 
that they might be anointed for leadership. Same thing, very similar happened when Jethro told Moses, his son-in-law, look, you're trying to shepherd everybody. You're trying to hear everybody's problems in this whole nation. You need to get other people. And so there were 70, remember, and the Holy Spirit on Moses came on the 70. There's something about an anointing for leadership. And then I wanted to just share this story here that's kind of interesting. There was a king named Joash who was not even a really godly king, but he lived in the days of Elisha. Elisha was getting old. Elisha was about to die. And so Elisha calls for King Joash to come to him. And Elisha is spending time with the king. And he, gives, he says, take some of these arrows and strike the ground with these arrows. The king struck the ground three times and stopped and Elisha was angry with him said if you would have kept striking the ground you would have totally annihilated your enemies but now you're only going to win three battles now you would have thought he would have figured something out right there but then Elisha tells him I want you to shoot an arrow out the window and listen Elisha put his hands on the king's hands did everybody catch that Elisha put his hands on the king's hands and the king drew the arrow and shot the arrow out. And Elisha said, you will win a victory this direction over this enemy. It was a prophetic act. You say, well, you know, why did God do that? Well, there's prophetic acts. There's things that just release something in the spirit realm. But I wanted to share that because Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands to initiate that. Did everybody catch that? And another thing. As long as Moses' hands were up, Joshua and them were winning the battle against the Amalekites in the, in the valley. But Moses couldn't keep his hands up by himself, so Aaron and Hur had to stand on each side and help him prop his hands up. But as long as his hands were up, there's something about our hands. Jesus took piercings in his feet, and the Bible says, everywhere the soles of your feet tread, I'll give you victory. There's something Jesus took piercings in his hands, there's something in our hands that God is wanting us to deliberately pass to the next generation, a generational blessing, an anointing. He wants Pentecost to pass to the next generation. He wants a revival to pass to the next generation. But we have to be deliberate about it. We have to pray into it. And I'm going to tell you, if we will do that, God will begin to move mightily from generation to generation. But there was something in my generation that did not pass this, and we're seeing the problems. All right. So the last thing I would say is this. Don't be hasty, though, about laying on of hands. In 1 Timothy 5.22, it says, Don't lay hands suddenly on anyone. Do not partake in other men's sins. Keep yourself pure. So what that actually is saying there is don't just go around indiscriminately laying hands on everybody without being led by the Lord to do so. Because not meaning to, you can be defiled by their sin and you can be affected by that. And so he's saying, don't just go around doing it indiscriminately. And I tell you, I grew up in Pentecost and unfortunately, Pentecostals were probably the world's worst about this. I mean, it was just a total free-for-all, lay hands on everybody all the time about everything. We need to be a little more wise. This man of God, I love and respect, and I've had things like this too. 
he said that there was a man that was struggling with depression and he knew it was something demonic or whatever and him and some of his buddies just laid hands and took authority and prayed over him he was delivered from depression but he said him and his buddies that prayed for him struggled with depression after that for a little while till they got the victory over it everybody catch that and he said looking back on it he didn't even ask the lord should we lay hands they just did it he said he learned to be led by the lord about things so be led by the spirit because you can be defiled and that also there can be spiritual attack. I'm not saying that to dissuade you or make you fearful. I'm saying that just be wise. Be led by the Lord. If we, how many knows that we're led by the Lord? Everything's going to be fine. But whenever I'm going through and praying over a group of people I don't know, many times I'll pour oil on my hands, anoint my hands, anoint myself, and ask God to kind of seal me off from anything and go through and pray over people. And I believe God to take care of that. And even after the fact... I have felt every once in a while, I felt maybe a little dirty or something. I just asked God to wash that and he takes care of it. But I go into it wise and being led by the Lord, knowing what I'm getting into. See, when you're going about laying hands in the altar ministry, you are in direct confrontation with the devil's kingdom because the, the works of the devil, the bondages, the strongholds, the curses, the sicknesses, things that the devil's had in people, you're driving that out of their life and releasing the kingdom of God. So there is an element of tremendous spiritual warfare that you're engaging in and you just simply need to be aware of that. And finally, revival in the harvest. River of Life, I'm just telling you, write it down, mark it, be ready. Just like Elisha laid on that boy the first time. God's laid on us. We've been warmed up. He's touched us. But I believe he's about to lay on us a second time. And there's about to be the bottom fall out. And the Holy, Holy Spirit's about to really fall in this ministry hard. In a way we haven't known. And it's going to be resurrection like life from the dead. And just like Jesus, when he delayed... Sometimes we look at God's delays and we're thinking, why is this delaying? There's a reason. And Jesus shows up to Lazarus' house and the Bible says that Jesus groaned in the spirit. And that groan, I've been hearing a groan here among the intercessors. When it was time for Israel to leave Egypt, they groaned. And I have sensed in River of Life there's been a groan because it's time. There's been something birthing in the spirit, a groan. And what happened when Jesus groaned? Lazarus was raised from the dead. Revival, life from the dead. But at the same time, when Lazarus came out, he still had his grave clothes on. God's about to pour out his spirit in a way we've not known greater than what we think right now. And there's going to be a harvest coming in, and it's going to be a life from the dead. These people are going to be born again, life from the dead. Others are going to return back to God. But as they come in and they, get, they accept the Lord as their Savior, they, all of that, many of them are still going to have their grave clothes on. You know what that is? They're still in bondage to things. There's still strongholds in their life. They need to be delivered from torment. They need to be totally set free. 
And what did Jesus say when Lazarus was raised from the dead? He told those there around him, get those grave clothes off him. And I believe God's about to lay on us again. There's about to be an outpouring of the Spirit, a harvest coming in. And when it comes, many of them need to be loosed from their grave clothes. And we need to be ready to see people set free from all kinds of bondages, strongholds, addictions, curses. Some of them are coming out of witchcraft. Others are coming out of of sexual perversions or substance abuse, all kinds of immorality. They're in bondage. And God wants to take their grave clothes off so they can live for him. But be ready because not only are people going to get saved, but they need to be set free. Amen? And God's going to come in. He's going to deliver people. Freely we have received. Freely we need to give. How many have felt over the last couple of years, especially since we've been doing these conferences, how many say, Pastor Scott, I believe that I have been really received from the Lord. I have received an impartation of the anointing on my life. Just as we have received freely, we need to give to this next generation. We need to be deliberate about it. We need to make sure that something is not lost from our generation to the next. We need to pass an impartation of a generational blessing to them, Pentecost, revival, intercession, but it needs to be deliberate. And much of that will come through the laying on of hands. And just remember that Shulamite woman She made room for the move of God. And because of that, she saw major miracles in her life and in her family. Some of you are believing for things in your personal life and your family. Make room for the move of God. Everybody look this way, hear me. Make room for the move of God in your life. Just like the Shulamite, you will see major miracles supernatural activity from God in your life, in your children, in your grandchildren, supernatural provision, supernatural healings, revival. If you'll make room for the move of God in your life and in your family, be ready because God will come down and there will be so many testimonies. So Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Let this be sealed in our hearts. Help us to remember it and apply it to our lives. And we thank you for it now in the mighty name of Jesus. How many have felt the anointing here tonight? This is where you're at tonight. I want my wife just to put on some worship. And I know we're live streaming all that, recording, but just... Maybe go to a screen. And I want us to begin to pray for a moment. You know, when I was growing up, one of the things that we would do when a sermon like this was preached, people would evaluate their life and say, Lord, am I making room for the move of God in my life? And I want us to spend a few moments in prayer. And maybe you could pray for your kids and grandkids. Lord, I want the revival that I've experienced, what you've done in my life, I want it to be in their life.